At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Well, hello everyone. It's David Nutt again and welcome to another Drug Science Podcast. Today I have two guests, both of whom have a particular interest in a topic that is very close to my heart and also to the uh, the heart of drug science, and that's how to reduce deaths from accidental overdose of drugs. We have Matt Southwell, who is the coordinator of Euro NPUD, and he'll explain a little bit more what that is, and Gillian Shorter, who is a, an academic from Belfast, who is researching the value, utility, and practice of safe injecting facilities, well, at least the van in Scotland. So welcome to you both. Great to have you on the programme. Thank you very much. It'd be good to be here. Delighted to be here. So Matt, why don't you kick off and explain to people about Euro NPUD and the other things that you do in relation to, to people who use drugs and how to make it safer for them? Yeah, thank you very much. So my name is Matt Southwell. I was a, one of the first generation of harm reduction workers in the UK. I was a health service manager. And then in 2001, I came out publicly on the BBC as a drug user, rapidly ending my NHS career. And since that time, I've been involved in helping drug users organise around the world. I'm currently, I work half time as the project executive for the European network of people who use drugs. And we represent drug users at the European Union. And we also support drug user groups around the European Union and its neighbouring countries to apply community mobilisation, do peer-led harm reduction, and be involved in responding to rights and health issues among our community. I also work for COAP, which is a technical support agency that does similar things, but more in a humanitarian aid setting. Good. And Gillian, do you want to tell us a little bit more about your career and background and uh, how you got into this field? So I started off being interested in nightclubs, really, and harm reduction there. As a raver myself, Um, a very enthusiastic, but um, perhaps unskilled dancer, I started off my career asking people in nightclubs what drugs they were on, taking their blood pressure, heart rate, and interested in what their perception of risk was in the middle of a chill-out room in in a nightclub in England. So I started off in a different place to where I am now, uh, really focusing on things like overdose prevention centres, which I first learned about when I was fortunate to do a research trip in Sydney, in Australia, and I got to see the Sydney Supervised Injecting Centre. And from there, when you get to see that harm reduction in action and what it can do for communities, for people who use drugs, for police officers, for businesses, that was it. And I was determined to try and do what I could to try and bring these facilities to the UK and Ireland. Good. So, I mean, you've both got the desire to reduce harms and you've both researched and worked in this field. And obviously there are different approaches 
So before we get into the one that is particularly relevant to today's discussion, you know, maybe Matt, would you like to just to sort of give a, an overview as to how you and or your organization, Euro Enpud, is looking at harm reduction in the, in the round, in the broader arena, rather than just in terms of safer injecting facilities or whatever. So perhaps give the, set the scene for harm reduction more generally, if you could, please. Yeah, look, we've got a very proud tradition in the UK um, of being one of the pioneers of harm reduction. We've got slightly lost in the last 10 years, unfortunately. But Liverpool and other parts of the UK were real pioneers in a model of trying to respond to drug use pragmatically. So the first and most well-known intervention is what's called needle and syringe programmes, previously called needle exchanges. But now we talk about needles and syringe programmes because we want to give people as much equipment as they need and not limit it to exchanging. That was a sort of classic harm reduction intervention. We have similar paraphernalia interventions for people who snort drugs or smoke drugs or take them by other routes. We also have drug treatment, so classically opiate agonist therapy, drugs like methadone or buprenorphine or dimorphine, which can help people who have a dependence to opioids to live full and healthy lives can help people stop taking drugs if they want to, but a very large proportion stay on those drugs for life and do very well and have a stability and a a chance to step outside the challenges of uh, problematic drug use. And then we have now increasingly in what we call enhanced harm reduction, which are new interventions starting to look at people who are maybe involved in the most risky parts of drug use, like using drugs in public settings or on the street. And In this context, we're now talking about the idea of drug consumption rooms or safer injecting facilities, also called overdose prevention centres. And these are places where people can come and safely inject in a space where there are people who can help them if they get into crisis, where there's good access to equipment and where they can be supported to also go on to engage in the wider healthcare system. And on top of that, we've got great interventions around getting people tested and onto life-saving treatments for HIV. Now we have an effective cure for hepatitis C. So harm reduction is an ever-growing set of interventions that we can use to support people. And people who use drugs are often frontline players in that system. We're often helping with peer work and community outreach to connect our community into that array of uh, services. So we're often playing a very pivotal role at the front end but we can also play roles throughout the system as well. Great. And Gillian, you, you, you mentioned the Sydney safe injecting room. And I remember my, so I haven't been to that one, but I, I do remember ooh, probably 10 years ago visiting the, the one in Vancouver and being absolutely blown away by both the scale and the vision of it. So perhaps you could elaborate a bit on the, on the background and the evidence and, and the justification for these facilities and how they have evolved in some places and not in others. Absolutely. And I think the services really depend on the clientele of who they serve. I think it's always the most successful services are those which really do engage with the people who use drugs that use that service. These are really low threshold services. We have a lot of sort of treatment services. We have outreach services already. We have needle and exchange programs, as Matt has talked about, all sorts of healthcare. But actually, these can be like harm reduction hubs, essentially, where we can bring together all of these and more. Even some more sophisticated ones are doing things like drug testing. We're seeing that some of the evidence coming out of New York, although emerging, is that they're doing things like testing for fentanyls and things like that. So 
those who use these services can have a more informed choice about what's going on um, and the choices that they are making. I think also one of the things we talk don't talk about a lot is we don't talk about how we look after people psychologically who come to these services. And I should confess that I am a psychologist. So here's my hobby horse, uh, David, for you. But I think, you know, making people feel like they have a service that is for them, that will look out for them, that will not judge them when they've had many doors slammed in their face in a healthcare setting before really does help to improve their life, their quality of life, as well as the quality of the health that they have. And it's just so much overwhelming evidence now from across the world, over 200 facilities. I think it's over 16 countries now or maybe 16 countries You know, it's really time we saw these things come to the UK and Ireland because every day we delay, we're seeing those phenomenal and deeply depressing drug deaths go up and up. And every day we delay, they continue to grow. So that does raise a really fundamental question. Why don't we have them, certainly in England and Wales? And, you know, I've watched this debate now, I guess, 30 years, and it seems to be couched in extraordinary moralistic terms and this uh, as soon as you talk about safe injecting facilities the media talk about shooting galleries and uh, local MPs talk about you know how you're going to encourage drug use and drug harms in the environment and lower the house prices and the daily mail and the express and all that go hysterical so I'd be interested in both of your why don't we start why don't I start with Matt why are we so hostile to this concept and then come back to afterwards, Gillian, you dispel some of these myths that can get churned out on a, you know, on route, you know, by sort of, you know, it's almost like they have a macro in the newspapers that spew out all the hostility. So, so what's the, what's the basis of hostility, do you think, Matt, considering that we actually, as you pointed out earlier, have quite a proud track record in harm reduction? For me, it's very clear. It's the scapegoating of people who use drugs in the in the UK is very strong. You know that different governments successively have used uh, people who use drugs as targets to demonstrate their tough on crime credentials. So even when people have invested money, like Tony Blair's government did, for example, you know very strong investment in drug treatment, it was also backed up with this sort of very criminalising, moralistic oversight of people who use drugs so it wasn't based on no we care for people who use drugs as a a part of our society and we're going to look out for them and even that 10 percent of the population who the world drugs report the un office of drugs and crimes world drugs report acknowledges that 10 percent of people who use drugs had problems so even among that group who experienced the most problems caring for them is starting to demonstrate our uh, for me, is about demonstrating our qualities as a society. How we look after those who are most marginalised in our society tells us about the values and the quality of the society that we live in. The fact that we are willing to demonise a population of people who are struggling, living on the streets, who often have multiple problematic other issues going on in their lives. They're often people that were failed by children's services in their in their youth. You no, know, women who've been sexually abused and have faced different challenges. People who've just struggled in life and other people who've just been using drugs and got into problems lots of different reasons why people end up in when they might be facing a situation of street-based drug use 
at the moment we leave those people using on the street in public in front of children feeling exposed and having interviewed people who use drugs in street-based settings that feeling of shame that feeling of exposure that feeling of having no other choices is devastating it's a written so it's a horrible experience for both groups to have to one witness or one be part of or other be part of and what drug consumption rooms do is it takes that vulnerable population off the street brings them into a cared for setting where there are health professionals and other peers who understand drug use who can treat them without judgment without stigma and invite them at the very most basic level to use drugs in a safe way and then to consider how else they might want to then interact with the healthcare and social care system and make changes in their lives. But the the fundamental reason is if you don't care about a population at the heart of it, then you're not going to be willing to invest money and you'll be willing to leave people on the streets. And ultimately, we know in places like Philippines, ultimately you'll be willing to shoot them in the back of the head. So, I mean, I think it starts from this deep stigmatisation of people who use drugs. And I'm sorry, politicians are highly culpable for creating that stigma. No, I wouldn't dispute that at all. I think I've often wondered whether whether it actually is possible to deal with stigma. And of course, it may not be, or it's certainly definitely not easy. But then the other approach is, of course, is to try to talk about the value of these interventions. And there are many values to having these safe facilities. And I think, Gillian, you could probably tell people about them. You know, less needles on the streets, less people in, in you know taking drugs, less crime, etc. Do you want to just elaborate what the real value of this is to the bigger community, not just to the drug user? So I completely hear and echo exactly everything that Matt was saying, but I always think that overdose prevention centres are the community solution that we are looking at. I think in recent times in politics, we've seen a real polarisation, left, right, centre, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But I think there is something genuinely for everyone. And I love to have conversations with people. So if you're listening and you're on the fence or you're anti, please do get in touch because it's one of the things I really do enjoy talking about. Perhaps if you're on the left and maybe you're thinking a little bit more about how we can look after individuals, we can prevent those deaths. We can prevent young constables new to the beat going out and having to deal with sort of unexpected deaths and overdose situations, having to navigate those situations. We can avoid the people who use drugs experiencing some of those, avoid them dying, help them stay healthy, help them thrive, develop quality of life. But even if you think, and I do not agree with you if you think this, that they don't deserve our compassion, we see them as unworthy. The one thing I would always say, if you if you really genuinely don't believe that we should be looking after this group of individuals, I always say that the big thing that I would sell it to you as is how much we can save money if we're not using emergency health care. Emergency healthcare is the most expensive healthcare. And if we're not having to call out our police and our ambulance to look after these individuals because we're sorting it in-house at an overdose prevention centre, then the amount we can save the public purse, if we just think these are not humans completely fiscally, the amount we can save is phenomenal. But for me, the, the, the main reason is that we get to look after people who are, are most vulnerable in society. Open drug scenes, are less of an issue because people can go somewhere. Drug-related litter goes down. 
But most importantly, we're not seeing the devastation and the trauma that happens as a stone drops in the pond, that ripple effect, the families, the people who know that person. We can't bring them back and we we cannot repair that trauma and we can try our very, very best to save them. So, of course, we are struggling and we are trying and Doug Science has a thought program going on of which uh, you're both part trying to work out how we might be able to to deal with what some people see as insurmountable legal issues of having a, making available somewhere for people to use a class A drugs. But we now see in Scotland, we see that Peter Crikant, who was a, an early uh, guest on my program, has actually managed to do it. And I'd like you both, you know, both to reflect on, is that simply because he's courageous? Why hasn't he been arrested? Well, perhaps tell the um, the audience who didn't hear the Crycant uh, interview with me, why don't, you, why don't you tell them how you see his what he's done and, and how he's managed to make it work in Glasgow, where, whereas we haven't managed yet in England and Wales. Who wants to take on that one? So it's a real honour that I got to be the evaluator of Peter's van, so I'm quite familiar with it. I think for Peter, he took an enormous risk and personal risk to himself, both financially, his own income. He wasn't working at the time. He was, you know, volunteering in this service. And it was enormous what he did. And I think, um, and Matt can probably correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it did give us a bit of a swift kick up the behind in the harm reduction community about things that could be possible. I think some of the things we've learned from that is that perhaps it's not in the public interest to prosecute anyone who's operating these services. And I'm not in the I'm not a police officer myself, so you know the law is is another part. But is it really in the best interests of our communities to be stopping these kind of services when they're providing a healthcare service? The other thing I think is really important is that there's good and important referral processes on. I think the service in Glasgow is no longer running. Well, I know it's no longer running, but I think better sort of integration into the wider community links to other services and crucially support that is not based on crowdfunding is really crucial to keeping these things open. And finally, and I'm finishing on this deliberately because this is a, a math speciality, is that I think the most successful services are ones where those who use the service um, are in, involved in the design and the future development of how the service is rolled out. And I think any future service would would want to adapt that model. And Peter, of course, was sort of adapting the service as it went along with the people who used it, as you might hope. Well, that's right. Yeah, I mean, his personal story is really, you know, rather remarkable one. And, and I guess, you know, he would almost probably say that, you know, it was at times he'd come very close to not being alive. So being arrested is rather trivial in comparison with the, the potential risk he's taken. And I, I think only once have the police actually intervened with him, haven't they? I mean, and then that didn't seem to last very long. So there does seem to be sort of perhaps some pragmatism there. But I think also the, um, the Lord Advocate in Scotland has actually said it's okay. And in fact, they've begun to adjust the, the police's attitude to young drug users. And certainly I think they're looking at a, a non-conviction approach for certainly for first offences. So they, so Scotland seems to be going ahead in a more rational fashion, possibly because it's got a bigger problem in England, or possibly it's just got a you know, more sort of evidence-based attitude. What have we got to change here, Matt, to make things happen here in the same way? Do, do we need a van like Peter's, or do we need to do it in, in a more sophisticated way? 
Yeah, look, I'm, often when you first have overdose prevention centres, they often start off with a quite a medicalised format, quite a, like, looks like an NHS-run facility, could be a bit sterile. It's often that facility that proves the, the model and gets everybody accepting it. And then you tend to get like a whole variety of different schemes, which can be shop fronts. I mean, Canada's had tents in the park, you know, uh, people taking over shop fronts, people opening up their front rooms. Yeah, so whole ranges of options can be opened up. And, and people who use drugs, and particularly people who inject drugs, prefer more front room style rooms rather than being, feeling like you're taking drugs in a, in a sterile injecting, uh, in a sterile clinical setting. But I think, I mean, Euro-Empodot, the European network of people who use drugs, also gave a grant to Peter to help with his work. And we recognise that it's often people who use drugs in our organisations that are at the forefront of pioneering work. The first ever needle and syringe program was run by Dutch drug users. Um, different drug users pioneered giving out uh, crack and methamphetamine stems to promote people's health. So in lots of different areas, we've seen people who use drugs doing innovation, working in partnership with other stakeholders, because then you get this combining effect, which is able to offer people much broader range of services and support. And some drug consumption rooms have been completely run by drug user groups, as is Peter's example, but also areas in Barcelona, a drug consumption room run by women who use drugs, for women who use drugs. So I, I think we start to see very creative opportunities that are about trying to engage a community, draw people back from the margins and give people a chance to live healthy, integrated lives. And have those examples internationally, have they been driven out of local community? I mean, maybe frame this a different way. Has any government given the, the thumbs up in the, in the sense that they've said, you don't have to comply with the UN conventions anymore? Or has it always been done at more local level? I think it very much varies on the site and sort of what's going on. We've sort of seen sort of the emerging of unsanctioned to sanctioned-ish models in New York, I think there's still some federal blocks there in terms of legalities and just in different places and different centres, I think they get around some of the legal issues in, in different ways. I think it's really important to have those community partnerships in the area in which you operate. You want to make sure you have the links to healthcare. You want to make sure that the police are aware of what you're doing. And I think that's something that went on with Peter. So as time progressed, although there was that early charge that was later dropped, he began to coexist very nicely with the police in, in Scotland at the time. Well, maybe not nicely is the word, <laughs> but certainly there was a, a sense of respect on, on either side of what was, what was happening and that complaints would have to be investigated and also that there was a sense that Peter was trying to save people's lives in the community and remove drug-related litter and support individuals. So I think it really just depends on, on where it is and the sort of the context. But as Matt has said, it really does come out of community involvement. It really does come out from, you know, people in, you know, the different inputs, whether it's Euro input or wherever, getting involved or other user organizations getting involved to sort of help develop the service model, develop the partnerships in the community and develop the model of service delivery that would be best used for that area. So I think it really does depend. And I think for the UK, it will depend too. But that community involvement, particularly the people who use drugs and links with the police and healthcare is absolutely central um, to the development of any service here. And I think it would be a risky option to open a service without that kind of community engagement and partnership. Having said that, 
I still need to recognize that all this sort of stuff takes time. And every every day we delay, there are more deaths. And every one of those deaths is a person who matters. No, quite. I mean, I suppose a couple of thoughts that have come to me in, in, in from your conversation. I mean, I mean, clearly there's an alignment or there should be an alignment between what the police are trying to do, which is make the streets safer and, and keeping people alive. Because it, it can't be, as you say, it can't be much fun to be a young policeman suddenly discovering dead bodies in, in stairwells and in, and, you know, in lean-tos and that, um, who've taken overdoses that are preventable. So to what extent is there a dialogue going on with the police in this country? Is that something that you two are engaged with? Or are they receptive? Can you go and talk to the police commissioners association or the police constables? I mean, what kind of interchange is happening at present? Yeah, look, when I, when I first started out as a harm reduction worker in East London, uh, I was very lucky to have uh, John Greaves, my local beat sergeant, who went on to be a very senior police officer uh, leading the, uh, the National Terrorist Squad eventually. But he was a you know, very committed local police beat sergeant who got us in as, as outreach workers to tra- and, and as people who use drugs to train all of the local serving police officers. So as we started to do harm reduction outreach on the drug scenes, you know, the police officers understood who we were and understood what we were doing, and they gave us space. Now, of course, as time went to start with, you know, we had problems with police buses sitting outside needle and syringe programs no but you learn to work with each other and accommodate each other and i think we've through that harm reduction era we found a great accommodation and to such an extent that i was at a conference in prague as one of the only out drug users at that conference and had a very hostile engagement with the very right-wing police and a british police officer in the room actually stood up and defended me and was actually very concerned to see such hostile relationships between drug users and the police. And he's, and we went, went later went on to do a front page magazine article together about this relationship that shows that if we could have decriminalization and end the ridiculous drug laws, we could actually allow relationships between people who use drugs and the police to evolve just like they are for other citizens, where we could actually talk about violence done to us. We could talk about the issues that we have to live with in our lives, which at the moment have to sit completely outside the world of the police because we have to hide from the police as a criminalised population. So we live in this strange world where many police officers are very strategic and sensible because they see the impact of our failed drug laws. Yet at the same time, we're caught in this hugely conflicted relationship with the police, which undermines our ability to be citizens and to function alongside a normal law enforcement um, environment. Yes, so this perhaps beginning, at least in some jurisdictions in this country, we've certainly got some chief constables who are being much more rational about drugs and particularly not criminalising people for small amounts of cannabis, etc., but what about politicians then, Virginia? How are we going to actually try to get the, the political establishment to listen? I mean, do you have any ideas as to how we might do it or drug science might help you do it? Well, we did have an event in Parliament, uh, I think it was the 6th of June or early June, where we tried to engage politicians. And enormous thanks to Jeff Smith for inviting us into the big house for the day. It was a wonderful event. Unfortunately, we're over. Did the van go to Parliament? Did I, did I hear that the van Fans and everything. It was wonderful. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're overshadowed by Boris Johnson's vote of no confidence, which ended up as one might have predicted, as it was all fine and everyone in the media was very excited about uh, that. But it was a bit of a 
non-event. Whereas we were really trying to get them engaged with this conversation. I, I It's one of my favorite things to talk about, to sort of really engage with people and the concerns they have, because I think, honestly, we have to hear what people are saying. And some people are genuinely afraid of opening these centres. What would happen if we open those centres? And we have to engage with that in a respectful way. We do have some excellent politicians, and I'd like to give a shout out to Paul Sweeney up in, up in Scotland, who has a bill which has just closed consultation to sort of look at overdose prevention centres and actually make them a reality and sort of change some legal positions to make it easier for these to operate and I think he's doing an enormous amount, but there's also others. We had, I'm also part of the Faculty of Public Health uh, Drug Special Interest Group, and we had two open letters which have been signed by a range of politicians across the country, including, not including Northern Ireland, unfortunately, but I'm working on it, uh, David. But uh, it's, it's a slow game <laughs> over here. But we did have a lot of politicians, Royal College of Physicians, GPs, surgeons, nursing, all the healthcare providers, lots of charities, including those involved um, in policing. We had lots of support for piloting these centres and lots of support for changing the regulations for the Misuse of Drugs Act 1971 to make it easier for these things to operate. I continue to open my inbox to any politician of any flavour or kind. I don't care. I'm not interested in your politics and Probably I, in Northern Ireland, I can't vote for you anyway. But if you have concerns, but you are concerned about uh, the deaths that are happening in your patch and the concerns that you have for community members that are often forgotten, please get in touch. I'm really willing to engage with you and, and hear and, and speak to you about the sort of evidence that we have from around the world. Yeah, thank you. And I guess that gets us neatly onto the onto the evidence from Glasgow, then, which is which is your particular uh, area of well, one area of your research at present. Do you want to just share with us what Peter's achieved in the last couple of years? Because when I had him on, he'd only just started. But I gather that, you know, the data's beginning to roll out. Yes, so we have published the first paper from that. We're working on some other papers as well. We'll see what happens with those in time. But I think essentially the headline figures are really, we think about overdose, for example, and we can see that we were intervening. I say we, sorry, Peter intervened and his team in nine overdoses involving eight individuals. Of those, there was only one ambulance call out. Now, you would imagine that for a lot of these things, we could see emergency services coming out. So we've saved quite a bit in the public purse. There were also over a thousand injection events, although we only have data for just under 900. The reason for that is there is no funding for data collectors on site. As much to my disgust that I, I wouldn't get leave from work to go and spend the day in the drug consumption van and neglect my students, I couldn't go over there to, to be the data collector on scene. You should have taken your students. That would have been a bit of applied psychology. Wouldn't it have been brilliant? <laughs> Actually, the students would have loved that too. But unfortunately, you know, the priority was always to look after the clients. And this was an unsanctioned site. It was busy. There were a lot of needs. There was a lot of trauma, a lot of stories that were being told to the volunteers. And a lot of work was going on in quite a concentrated period. So I'm just, you know, if you think about those 894 injections, that's 894 injections that weren't on a street somewhere. It's individuals who were coming to this centre. You could see that over time, 
People were coming more regularly. So they were building up trust in Peter and all the other volunteers. And then that translated to better health. So it turns out that when you build people up and you make them feel like people of worth and you dampen down the shame that's coming from every angle, what you find is that people are making better choices for themselves, better healthful choices in any direction towards health. And I always remember, there's always two people I always remember. One is a young lady who was took about six months to use the service and very nervous and and unkeen to sort of engage and this is a very low there's, there's very no almost no barrier to entry um here you know in terms of the requirements you need to be as an, an injecting a person who injects drugs at the time this person is now stabilized on opiate substitution treatment having been to the van didn't want to go at the start enormous trauma history and now doing really well and the other one i always think of is a man who was in a three-wheeled wheelchair. Now, David, I'm no physicist, but uh, you know as well as I do <laughs> that wheelchairs should have four wheels, and your listeners will do too. Absolutely right. <laughs> and what makes this even more heartbreaking is this is someone who was maybe sort of asking for money on the street. And what makes it even worse than that, so as if it couldn't get any worse than that, and he was visible like on a daily basis to people who would pass by and wonderful services, don't get me wrong, who exist in Glasgow and look after their citizens. But this person was forgotten and their legs were amputated under the knee. So not only was this person, you know, fairly substantially injured, they were also in a three-wheeled wheelchair. And I'm not picking on the people of Glasgow because I miss them here in Belfast near where I live. And I'll miss them all around the country, as will people of compassion who are listening. We miss these people. And this is the kind of people we can reach. This is the kind of people we can buy a four-wheeled wheelchair for and give them that quality of life that they so dearly deserved but didn't feel that they deserved. And he wasn't in great health, the person. I'm not sure if he's with us now in terms of his health status. But you know what? It's one of the nicest things I can think of to know that that man um, if he's still around, wonderful. But if he's not, that in his last days, that that man felt that somebody cared enough to shell out eighty pounds for a wheelchair so that he could get around without requiring support from other people. Those are the kind of people we can reach with drug consumption rooms. Yes, absolutely. And as you say, the investment is very low, and the return is very high. Very yes. high return. So um, we get must be getting near to the end. I just want to hand over back to Matt before we finish. So. Do you see Scotland as being the place where we should be investing to try to go beyond the van? Is that given that the van is now is accepted, is Scotland the place we should be trying to sustain? Yeah, look, I think Scotland's a very interesting part of the world. I mean, I've having through the European network of people who use drugs, we are talking to a number of different Scottish officials about their opiate agonist treatment, about drug consumption rooms. And they're just having smart science-based discussions, which unfortunately isn't happening in England. But one thing that is, has been happening in England, which is the drug science um, study that we've been doing, which has been looking at the conditions for creating drug consumption rooms. And Sandwell in the West Midlands is an area where drug science funded a study, which Gillian and I were both involved in delivering. And we work with a local drug user group called SCORE, which is the Sandwell Community Outreach Resources and Education. And this is a group of drug users who themselves are engaging in street-based drug use. 
And we did a combination program where we first taught people how to rescue their friends from opiate overdose with naloxone. And then we did uh, community cleanup operations, clearing up, I mean, just ridiculous amounts of needles and syringes, boxes and boxes and boxes of them taken out of car parks, down the sides of rivers, down the sides of railways. I mean, just huge amounts of street-based drug use going on in very public settings and the equipment just being left in the streets and the populations left behind. And what we were able to do by working with this group of uh, people who inject drugs was to talk to people who inject drugs in Sandwell, to understand the challenges that they were facing with street-based drug use, and to gather that together in a key report, which uh, Drug Science has published. And we're using that as part of the evidence to try to say, look, these are real people living in desperate circumstances where we're leaving them to use in the street. Now, there are simple opportunities for removing this from uh, causing a problem for people who have to witness and be alongside it, but also to bring those most vulnerable people from our society off the street into a safe place where we can prevent overdoses, support them to, to use drugs more safely, and then look at their other needs and help them engage in making positive change in their lives. So I think, yes, Scotland is a very exciting place. It's definitely a place where I think they're going to model the future of drug policy and drug practice in the UK. I just wish England could uh, learn from it. But the people who use drugs in Sandwell have really given us a very interesting insight into the practices of street-based drug use and what we could do at it. Well, thanks, Matt. That's obviously a, an important first step in trying to make the, make the intellectual and economic case for having an overdose prevention centre in, in somewhere in the UK and, and maybe maybe Sandwell. Well, I want to say thank you to both of you, to Matt Southwell and to Gillian Shorter. I don't think uh, any campaign could have more, more committed and, and articulate uh, protagonists than you two. And uh, I also want to thank you for the work you're doing, not just not just for doing this podcast, but it's, uh, you know, it's very much necessary and cutting edge. And I'm sure the listeners to this podcast will, will agree with me, you know, that it is, it's a vital, necessary step in improving the life quality, not just of people who use drugs, but also of people who are affected, the families, and also individuals who live with them and have to cope with the problems of them you know, injecting in streets and, and stairwells, etc. So if any of you are listening are not followers of drug science or supporters of drug science, then feel free to become part of our community your support can not only help us continue with the, the podcast and the, and the journal, but also begin to set up exciting new opportunities for interventions in research, such as we're exploring currently with um, overdose prevention centres in England and Wales. So thank you for listening. And thanks again, Matt and Gillian. Thank you. Thank you very much.